Hello, everyone. Welcome to Danger in Delaware. From being the first state to sign the Constitution to being the home of the current commander-in-chief, Delaware has a wide and vast history for such a small state. Delaware is known by a number of nicknames. The First State, the Diamond State, or the Small Wonder. And Delaware is wondrous. It has sandy beaches and historic buildings. You can venture past the dunes of Rehoboth Beach and a few miles down the road visit Swanendale Museum, commemorating the first settlement in Delaware. Delaware is packed full of history, and I admittedly don't know as much about it as I could. I do have a unique perspective on Delaware. I was born and raised in Lower Slower Delaware. There are only three counties in Delaware, two below the canal and one above. The lower two counties are affectionately known as Lower Slower, deleting the word Delaware. Sussex County has many farms with chicken houses liberally dotting the landscape. Kent County still has farmlands, but overall it's not quite as rural as Sussex County, but pretty close. Then you hit the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal, the C&D. This cuts a wide swath through the state. Above the canal is more urban, and I have had the pleasure of living there as well, meeting my husband and having my first child while I lived there. To go back a few years, during college, I lived in a suburb of New York. It was funny at the time because I was literally the only Delawarean there. It was an extremely small college, so the Baltimoreans adopted me. People loved my accent, though. I don't think I have one. And I was asked on multiple occasions where in New England was Delaware. I felt like Bill and Ted landing in Delaware. But after college, financially, I could not live in New York, and I came back home to Lower Slower, eventually finding my way to Wilmington, then back to my hometown. Living in Wilmington, though, was sort of a compromise between the quiet of Lower Slower and the bustle of New York. So I'm going to explore the dangers that lurk in this small state. These dangers can run from unbelievable crimes, heart-pounding nor'easters, tropical storms, hurricanes, tornadoes, even an occasional earthquake, and unexploded World War II munitions. Before I begin, I'd like to provide a disclaimer that this podcast reflects my personal interest in true crime and tragedies and the exploration of how an event occurred. I mean no disrespect to any parties mentioned in the podcast. I have obtained facts for this information through all publicly available sources from the internet, YouTube, and any other documentaries available. In some cases, personal observations about the area or knowledge about certain areas may be discussed. This podcast is produced for informational purposes, and as I have gleaned the information from publicly available sources, I cannot guarantee that everything is accurate, complete, or valid. I or my podcast cannot be held responsible for any errors, misinformation, and time delays, such as there are further updates after the publication of this podcast. 
some topics may not be suitable for children. Parental discretion is advised. So, let's explore some of the dark events that are generously sprinkled throughout Delaware history. So where to begin? Let's go back almost 30 years to a case that I find almost unbelievable, a case that came about because of so many decisions, though small and what would normally be inconsequential, changed the lives of a whole family. Please join me for Decision and Drive, the unbelievable tale of Dorothy Donovan and her son, Charles Holden. So, what would you do? Let's set the scene. It's dark. A late night of work has left you tired. You have a relatively short drive home, heading to your trailer home a few miles away. You make a decision to stop at a fast food restaurant, a Hardee's. By the way, this Hardee's fast food restaurant is literally a stone's throw away from my late great aunt Norma's store. It's now a Verizon. But I used to love stopping there. She would sometimes give me something small. But back to the story. Standing at the counter, you wait for your food, reflecting on your day, which ended with your work shift at 11 p.m. You grab your food, nod your head at the cashier. Because we do that in Delaware, when I went off to college in New York and I nodded my head at someone passing on the sidewalk, my newly formed native New Yorker friends grabbed me and all at once three young women were talking at an ever-increasing speed and volume, incredulous that I had the nerve to nod at the man passing by me. But I digress. So, you're enjoying the relative quiet that will seem alien to this town at about the same time next month. The Delaware State Fair takes over the small town of Harrington in late July, with seemingly more visitors packing into the town each night of the fair than for the rest of the year combined. You take a long drink from the fast food cup, hoping that the cool liquid will help ease the weighty mugginess. It doesn't work. On a night like this, the soda cup has already started to sweat, and the once sweet drink is now watery, diluted to the point of almost being unrecognizable as soda. It's only been a few minutes, with you sitting in your car, putting off going home, hoping that you can get some relief from the heat. June 22nd, 1991, was warm and muggy like any other night this time of year. Then you see him, a man. He's approaching your truck. You're unsure why. What does he want? Does he need directions? Remember, this is 1991. No one could just take out a phone and search for a place. So thoughts are racing through your mind before you even know what he wants. You just hope that your night isn't derailed. You just want to relax, but you've always been taught to be kind, neighborly. But this can sometimes put yourself in a, an enviable position. You also don't know the man's situation. He could be desperate no matter what, desperate enough to steal or desperate to get somewhere. Okay, put this in a little bit more context and expand upon what I said a few moments ago. This is 1991. Cell phones were not to be found. 
there was no such thing as Uber. And in Lower Slower, below the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal, it could be miles and miles before you got anywhere. There are no readily available taxis. In Lower Slower, we do what we can to help our neighbors and everyone, even though we might not have met them yet, were our neighbors. I think things may have changed since then, and we might not be as neighborly as before, and this may just have been a catalyst for that. So, some of what I just said is a backdrop for what's about to happen to Charles Holden and his family. The man approached Holden's vehicle. He let him know that he had a family emergency and he needed to get to Georgetown, which is in the southernmost county of Delaware, Sussex County. They were currently in Harrington, which was in the middle county of Kent. It was lucky for the man that Holden was headed a little bit south. Besides no Ubers, nor any direct public transit, there was a possibility that you would drop the stranger far away from anywhere he wanted to go, far away from most residential areas, still leaving the man to find his way in the dark, amongst the dark country roads with no discernible shoulder, cars speeding around the curves with only a field or a ditch to take cover if one of the cars didn't see you. Holden told the man that he couldn't drive him all of the way, but he could take him partway there. The man agreed. And I'm just going to interject here. Knowing the roads and distance between towns in Delaware, and with the foreknowledge that there will be a farmhouse involved, I have to wonder about the man's acceptance of this ride. None of the sources that I found discussed this, but looking at this through Charles's eyes, I might have asked myself why this man is okay with being driven part of the way. While this may take him closer to his destination, it may leave him in an even worse position. The stranger would need to get out of the truck in the middle of nowhere, with even less chance that he will find someone to take him the rest of the way to Georgetown. If he had stayed at the restaurant, he would have had a much better chance of finding someone to drive him than being able to flag down a passing car on stretches of back road. Not to mention the fact that it would be dark with minimal or no lighting. Or was this even discussed during the ride? Did the stranger accept the ride without knowing approximately where he would be dropped off? With the hindsight of knowing what's going to occur later in the night, I can think to ask these questions. But in the moment, it probably wouldn't have seemed necessary. A man needed a ride, and Charles was happy to oblige as much as he could. So back to Charles. He drives for a while, and I do also wonder what kind of small talk, if any, was there, or if they drove in silence. The drive probably would have been slow for at least part of the drive. When I say that the speed limit is strictly enforced in Harrington, I am not doing it justice. It was that way 30 years ago and still is today. After they had driven for a while, Charles stopped a distance from his home, about a half a mile away, at an intersection. While he wanted to help the man, he didn't want to lead him directly to his house. He stopped the vehicle at the intersection and let his passenger know this was where the ride ended. I don't think that, in Charles's wildest imagination, that he would have ever expected the stranger to react the way he did. 
because he had already told him that he couldn't drive him all the way to Georgetown. But the man reacted strongly, and chaos ensued. Okay, so maybe reacted strongly is a little bit of an understatement. The man attacked Charles, telling him that he wanted Charles's money and truck. The man grabbed a screwdriver from the floor of the truck, and I also wonder now if Charles thinks about that screwdriver. Charles was able to get away, taking his truck keys as he went. He tried to run for help, but the stranger caught up to him. Charles did his best to keep his cool, and he convinced the stranger that he would drive him to the complete distance. The tension of the situation seemed to abate, and Charles used this to his advantage. He was able to get into the truck and take off before the stranger was able to get back into the vehicle. Disaster averted for now. Even more than before, Charles was worried about the stranger following him home, so he rode around, making sure in his mind to shake his previous passenger. Again, it didn't work. I'm thinking by this point that Charles must have been relieved, though. His heart rate had probably slowed down, his breathing was a little easier than 20 minutes ago, but when he got back to his trailer home, he saw the man around his property. How had he found the home? There were other homes around, but the man had chosen Charles's. Charles had to drive off to call the police from a payphone. His 911 call shows that he is concerned, especially for his mother as she lives in the farmhouse behind his trailer, and an officer did meet him. His trailer home looked fine, nothing taken, and Charles wanted to check on his mother's house behind the trailer. The officer obliged, but the scene was much different than Holden's place. This was bloody. Dorothy Donovan, Charles's mother, was 70 years old. She was widowed twice over and was a grandmother of seven. The glass to the back door had been broken. They did enter the house, and when the officer found Mrs. Donovan, she had been stabbed in her upper body a number of times. She did not survive the attack. In the sources that I found, it is reported that she was positioned in such a way that it appeared that there could have been sexual assault. Was this a motive? The medical examiner soon determined that it was not, so her body had been posed, possibly as a red herring. There also did not seem to be anything missing, so if robbery was a motive, that didn't make sense. If nothing was missing, this had to be personal, right? A few aspects of the scene made it seem so. Mrs. Donovan had been stabbed multiple times, and the attack showed a rage. This was normally seen in personal attacks, not random ones. Also, a pillow was placed over her head. Covering the face is also done in many personal attacks, as the perpetrator does not want to look into the face of his or her victim. During the initial stages of the investigation, while Charles is still at the scene, he says to an officer that he can't believe he killed his mother. This, of course, leads to a number of questions about exactly who he is. I guess at times, especially as more time goes by, our timelines can get a little messed up in our heads. This happened in 1991. 
So I would have been a teenager. And in my mind's eye, I tend to picture myself as that teenager watching unsolved mysteries or forensic files, both of which featured this story. But based on the years in which these episodes aired, I was probably past being a teenager or possibly a few years older than I was at the time of the incident. I wonder, though, if my mind is melding together when I first heard about the story in the news and when I first saw a show segment with a reenactment, giving me a false sense of time and memory. What I see as I reflect is my teenage self looking at this with skepticism, staring at the TV screen with one eyebrow raised like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. How stupid, how gullible did this man think we were? Did he really think the police would believe this? I sat back, waiting for the key piece of evidence that would reveal the son's story as a lie. The police did too, figuring that the physical evidence that they collected at the crime scene would show Charles was the perpetrator. The interrogation scenes from the Forensic Files episode are intense. The police not hiding any of their feelings, stating that not even an idiot would believe that story. He also refused to take a polygraph, cementing his guilt in the eyes of the police. Looking at polygraphs, I can't really say 100% how I feel about them. I think that in the proper hands, with people who are experienced and conscientious about what to look for on a polygraph, they can be a useful tool in rolling people out. But as a lot of the polygraph results are subjective, either the examiner may be too lax or too strict on his or her interrogations and interpretations. Also, the skilled criminal may know how to trick the test. But lucky for Charles, fate was on his side at least for once that night. People at the restaurant had seen the stranger and saw him get into Charles's truck. Another passerby saw the scuffle when Charles stopped. Okay, so I'm just going to interject here again. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I think when I had seen something like this, when I got home, I might have called the police. I know that, you know, if they saw the whole thing, that they did see Charles get away and get in the truck and flee. But that meant that there was still a violent person out there. But I also have to tell myself that hindsight is twenty twenty, and knowing what I know may cloud some of my opinions. Lastly, and most importantly, there was DNA, blood to be exact, on a light switch and a palm print that did not belong to Charles. And as the palm print was in blood, there was no doubt as to when the print was left there. Charles was no longer a suspect in the physical attack of his mother, much to the surprise, I'm sure, of most everyone watching the show. But the police still had some skepticism. Based on the rage and overkill seen on Mrs. Donovan's body, if it was not a personal attack, could the suspect have been on drugs? Though I did not live in Harrington during this time, many of the small towns around that time frame in Delaware, at least lower slower, had a very bad drug problem. The mayor of my sleepy little town appeared on a 48 hours episode in 1989 regarding the epidemic. I was 13 then, 
And please don't do the math to figure out my age. But the description of the episode is as follows. First, the title of the episode was 48 Hours Return to Crack Street. Nothing ominous there. Then, and the description further read, an examination of the impact of crack cocaine on U.S. communities. This broadcast includes a live discussion with Robert Stutman of the New York City DEA, Professor Ethan Nadelman, New York City Director of Treatment, Tom White, a crack addict identified as Luis, Seaford, Delaware Mayor Guy Longo, Youth Counselor Lucinda Grant, etc. So, drug-fueled rages were nothing new to the police in Delaware. But they did not see how Charles and this stranger could not be connected in some way, that they could be in on it together, because truly, there was coincidence, then there was unbelievable. And this was falling far onto the side of unbelievable, especially since Charles was on the receiving end of a $100,000 accidental death insurance policy for his mother. And Charles had some debts related to farming. So based on the evidence, though, the police didn't have anything that they could hold Charles for. The police continued the investigation and got a description of the hitchhiker from both Charles and other witnesses. He was an African-American male that had a slender build, about 5 foot 8 inches tall, with plastic-rimmed glasses with oversized lenses. A photo lineup was put together based on a composite drawing, and both Charles and some of the other witnesses picked out the same man. But, again, much to the surprise of the detectives, this man was ruled out based on the physical evidence that they had. I'm not going to say this man's name. While he did have a mugshot indicating that he had been arrested at least once before, he was definitely not guilty of this crime, and I don't want to put an innocent man's name out there. So, time did start to pass, slowly at first, but days, then weeks, months, then years, until it had been over a decade since Dorothy Donovan had been viciously murdered. I'm sure a cloud of suspicion still hung over her son. I can't imagine the inner turmoil that he and his family must have felt. I have actually thought about this case quite a few times over the years. My mother had gotten me into watching true crime shows, and since the current pandemic began, I have watched more than my fair share of ID and YouTube videos, as well as listening to podcasts. So these are my thoughts. Charles was a kind man trying to do a good deed, and at every step of the way, it seemed to come back to bite him. His family probably wanted to believe him, but the story was almost beyond belief, and even though the palm print and blood evidence exonerated him from being the actual murderer, the bizarre series of events must have cast some doubt in at least some of his family's minds. But do you know what? The police never forgot this case. For one, the scenario was unforgettable, but technology had also made some great advances. Sitting here in 2021, the term DNA is part of every true crime aficionado's lexicon. It's a true identifiable source that cannot be denied. 
If a perp has left DNA at the scene, their only hope is that they have an identical twin so that they can cast doubt over which one did it. And I've actually seen two cases like this. So when Delaware came online with CODIS, it was time for the detectives to move. CODIS is a nationwide database for DNA. So law enforcement can put information and DNA into CODIS to try to find a match. They sent DNA evidence from the light switch, blood that did not match Charles's blood. So this was blood that had to be shed by the killer as he had cut himself while stabbing Mrs. Donovan or breaking the window. Approximately a week later, the detectives got the call. There was a match, an exact match. Gilbert Cannon, a one-time resident of Harrington, Delaware, but now living in Del Mar, Maryland. By the way, half of Del Mar is in Delaware. The other half is in Maryland. I forget how old I was when I had a duh moment and it just hit me. Delaware, Del, Maryland, Mar. So, Del Mar. But again, I'm getting a little off topic. Cannon was in the system for a prior drug arrest and had been in prison. One article did say that he had been in prison for a murder before, but that was only one article. It was not mentioned in the two videos that I reviewed, so I cannot 100% confirm this. Based on the timing, though, I would find that hard to believe. The crimes that he was in prison for had him imprisoned in 1997, and he was out of prison by the time that he was arrested in January 2006. So to me, that's a very short time frame to have served a sentence for murder. Now, of course, Cannon denied that he had done anything, but after a few hours of interrogation and faced with the undeniable facts, he caved. The motive for the killing, to me, is also unreal. After being left by Charles, Gilbert Cannon started walking. He wanted to find a house to sleep in. Yes, he was looking for a house to sleep in, a house to break into to sleep. Every other house that he passed had lights on. Dorothy's was the first house he came upon whose lights were out. The sound of breaking glass awoke Dorothy. This surprised Cannon. But truly, though, he thought that just because lights were out, the house was vacant. He had been looking for a vacant house, but... I mean, this was after midnight by the time he got there. So he didn't just think that people would be asleep and that's why the lights were out. But then again, he was high on cocaine is what he admitted to. So his thought process may not have actually been normal at that time. So once Mrs. Donovan awoke, Cannon was afraid that she could ID him. So he killed her stabbing and stabbing and stabbing the elderly woman with Charles's screwdriver, the one that he picked up from the floor of the truck to attack Charles, was used to kill Charles's mother. Cannon said he was high on cocaine, so that is the only reason that I can ever think of why he thought lights out meant vacant house after midnight. 
that has never made sense to me. In order to avoid the death penalty, he struck a deal to serve life in prison. But most importantly, in his confession, he fully exonerated Charles, fully clearing him and corroborating the events as Charles had stated. In fact, Cannon was not even aware that the woman he killed was the mother of the man that gave him a ride, and he was surprised by this. The 30th anniversary of this crime is coming up. This makes me wonder what would have happened if this crime took place in 1961, not 1991. Would the detectives have kept the blood sample on file? Would they have known to? The thought of using DNA in crime scene investigations was what seemed light years away. Would there have been fewer cars around so no one would have witnessed the attack on Charles? Would the Hardee's restaurant have been there in 1961? Or if it was there, would it be open that late for Charles to stop at? If not, where else could he have gone? Or would he have just ended up going home? Harrington is a somewhat sleepy town now. So if this had taken place in 1961 instead of 91, would any restaurant have been opened? And most importantly, would there have been a cocaine epidemic in this area? Or would it have been another drug? Or possibly would there have been no drugs at all? And please know in this next section that I'm not saying that Charles should doubt any of his decisions or feel remorse. He was just trying to help someone, but that someone took the desire to help and used it to try to obtain an end that he never actually got that night. At least as far as I can tell, he did not get cocaine. So along with the true crime genre, I like to listen to aircraft and engineering catastrophes. In many, if not most, of these cases, there is a series of actions or decisions that ultimately lead to a fate. These actions and decisions are not done with an intent to harm in most cases, but a tragedy never happens in a vacuum. And a number of things normally need to be done at just the right or wrong times for that tragedy to occur. So we have to look at decisions. Decisions to give someone a ride, to not take the hitchhiker or take the hitchhiker the full way on where to drop the hitchhiker off, of leaving a screwdriver on the floor of the truck, on driving around for about 20 minutes to not lead the stranger to your home. All innocent decisions with the initial one born out of a willingness to help another man. Decisions to take drugs, to search out more drugs, to try to hitchhike, to accept a ride knowing that the driver could not take you the whole way, to attack a good Samaritan, to pick up the screwdriver, which way to turn when walking, to try to find a place to sleep, and deciding on a house that he thought was vacant. All decisions fueled by a desire to feed a habit, and ultimately his decision to kill an innocent woman, to shatter a family. Charles seemed to be a good man. No one in his family deserved to go through the horror that they lived through and the fear that Dorothy must have felt during this time 
is unimaginable. I feel so much for Charles. I'm sure this night replays in his mind. He was just a hardworking man who tried to do a fellow man a favor. I did see a partial interview with Dorothy's daughter, Charles's sister, and she did mention that it was a relief to know that Charles was not connected to Gilbert Cannon. So this makes me feel for him even more. At family events, did people look at him with suspicion or did they welcome him with open arms? Was the family split? There's really not a lot of information on that, but just based on regular family dynamics, in most cases, I would have to think that at least a couple people had suspicions, especially with the life insurance policy. So I'm extremely glad that Cannon fully exonerated Charles to his family so that everybody can live with the knowledge that Dorothy's son had absolutely nothing to do with the murder, and all he was trying to do was a good deed. So here ends the first episode of Danger in Delaware. I hope to put out a new podcast once every two weeks. These cases do take a lot of research, but I do enjoy unraveling the mystery and puzzle pieces that led to a certain tragedy or outcome. If you do have a case that is connected to Delaware and you would like to see me feature it, please email me at dangerindelaware at gmail.com. I hope to start putting together social media over the next few weeks, and that way we can keep up with other true crime events not just those that are happening in Delaware. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. Also, if you're listening on Apple iTunes, please leave a review, even though for right now, iTunes is not allowing me to upload the podcast, but I'm going to desperately be trying to upload it there. But it is definitely available on Google, Stitcher, Amazon, and a few other podcatchers. I will leave the links to any of those episodes in the description of this podcast so that when you do review it, if you want to listen to it in a different format, those will be linked to it. I really appreciate the opportunity to share these stories and try to get a better understanding of our thought processes, of what some people will do in certain situations, and examining the puzzle pieces that put a story together. Thank you again, and I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Bye.